it's likely that all of us know someone who has fallen away from faith or drifted away from Christ altogether. And every time we hear about a situation like this, whether friend or family, our hearts break for loved ones who walk away from Jesus for one reason or another. And we continue to pray for them. We continue to love people who have drifted away from Jesus. But then we should also be aware and consider why is it that many people in our day and age walk away from Jesus altogether? And as we consider some of the reasons, we find often that they walk away from Jesus for for one of three reasons. Some fall away simply due to apathy or forgetfulness. They lose the beauty of Christ that we've sung about here this morning, and and they begin to think that they really don't need Jesus anymore in their life. Their life is fine. It's good. I don't really need Jesus. And so rather than rejecting Christ outright, it's a slow fade away until they're disconnected from Jesus and his body, the church, altogether. Another reason why some fall away from Jesus is because they believe that they found something better than Jesus, something superior to him, something more reasonable and appealing to their ego. And so they they reject Christianity outright for something else that they find better than Jesus. And still others will reject Jesus as they encounter life-shattering trials and suffering that cause them to question God all together. And so they walk away from him. So whether it's a terrible experience in the church, inside or outside the church, or perhaps the hypocrisy that they've seen firsthand, or the hardships that they've endured, many of these people walk away from Jesus as they come to the conclusion that it just isn't worth it. It's not worth following Jesus. And as we think of those who have turned from Jesus, or those on the verge from falling away from Jesus for one reason or another, we need to care about them. We need to continue to love them and reach out to them in love. But at the same time, even as we see more and more people falling away from the faith than ever before, perhaps, it does prompt for us a few questions that we need to evaluate. Like, how can we, the church, help one another maintain our own commitment to Jesus so that we ourselves don't walk away from him as so many have done around us? How do we help one another see the value and worth of Jesus Christ so that we don't fall into the temptations and snares of this world that promise life but deliver death instead? And how do we help those who experience life-shattering trials and tribulations that caused them to question God altogether. As we begin a new sermon series this morning in the book of Hebrews, these are some of the questions that the author is speaking to. He's speaking to people, the church, that are on the verge of falling away from Christ for some of these reasons. And he writes then, he writes to bolster the faith of believers by helping them see once again that Jesus is better. He is greater than anything or anyone else in this world. 
Jesus will make it all worth it in the end. And so we can follow him confidently no matter what we encounter in this life. So be faithful to the one who is superior above all. So as we explore the book of Hebrews today, this is one of our primary goals. Our primary goal is to see this theme clearly throughout the letter, that Jesus is better than anyone or anything, so we can confidently place our faith, our trust, our hope, our all in all in Christ alone. But then my second goal for today's sermon is to help you have a better understanding of the book as a whole. I want to give you a roadmap so that when you read it, you are not completely lost as to what's happening or what the author is trying to do. So let us begin then by trying to gain a better understanding of the book of Hebrews as a whole. And as we begin to explore Hebrews, we should, we should start by first acknowledging some of the difficulties as we come to this letter, okay? And much of this difficulty comes from the realization that there is just a lot that we don't know about the book in general. So unlike many books in the New Testament where we have plenty of context and details as to what's taking place, uh, we, we really don't have a lot when it comes to Hebrews. And we just need to acknowledge that up front. And, and it causes us sometimes some confusion as to what's going on. So for instance, first of all, we, we just don't know who the author of Hebrews is as he never identifies himself. Uh, some think it to be Luke, others Paul, a few Barnabas, and, and my personal favorite guess is Apollos. Uh, but the truth is, we just don't know, okay? We don't know who the author is. And so while we could speculate, you know, all day as to reasons of who it could be, we just don't know. But even though we don't know who the author is, we do know that the author was incredibly knowledgeable of the Old Testament, and its interpretation. And as you read this letter, you will see over and over and over again quotation from the Old Testament. You will see citation after citation after citation from the Old Testament to make his point. And so the author will reveal in-depth knowledge of the Old Testament, and he will use it masterfully to point us to the greatness of Christ and his superiority above all things. And this is meant to encourage us then in our faith. So whenever you see these Old Testament citations come up, we need to pay attention to them. So while we don't know who the author is, then we do know that he does know the Old Testament incredibly well and expects us to do the same. This brings us to the second thing we don't know, and that is the intended audience. As we read this letter, there is no specific church or group of people in mind. He, of course, has someone in mind. We just don't know who it is. It seems to be more general than it is specific. And this, again, makes it difficult for us to identify the context for this letter. But even though we don't know the exact audience, we can pick up that he was expecting the people reading this letter to know the Old Testament like the back of their hand. Okay? He was expecting them to know it inside and out, like to have large portions of it memorized. And so this is why many guess that the intended audience for the book of Hebrews is the Hebrew people, right? It's in the name, to the Hebrews, Hebrew people, to Jewish Christians. And this is, uh, again, why it's perhaps named Hebrews. But even though it's named to the Jewish people, 
Uh, we can't know for certain if this is his actual audience in mind because the Gentiles by this point would have become very familiar with the Old Testament as well. So we don't know its original audience, though we can guess Jewish Christians mainly. And finally, then, we just don't know the date of the letter. Um, it's likely that this letter was written before the fall of the Jewish temple in AD 70 because he will still speak as if the temple is still active and well as he talks about the sacrificial system passing away. And again, had the temple fallen after AD 70, you bet he would have mentioned it here in this letter. So sometime before AD 70, but beyond that, again, we don't really know the exact date at all. And so as we, as we consider these things that, that we don't know here together this morning, um, it's going to make it a little bit difficult as you read the letter to understand what's happening, what's taking place. And, and it would be nice to have more context, but we just don't have it, and that's okay. And so because of this, it should cause us in our approach to this letter, and, and really all the letters of the Bible, to have humility to rely humbly on God as we read this letter and as we trust him and seek him all the more. And so as you read this letter and you sometimes wonder what in the world is going on here, let those hardships drive you into deeper prayer, humility, and study of God's word. Let the hardships draw you closer to God rather than create apathy or indifference. Because I think sometimes we can respond that way when it gets hard, rather than digging deeper as God intended us to do. Now, even though we don't have all the background information that we would like or details, this doesn't mean that we are completely clueless as to what this letter is about, okay? Uh, or what he's trying to accomplish in Hebrews. Because as we read this letter, we can gather much information of what is taking place by reading between the lines of the letter, okay? Catching repeated themes that happen over and over and over again. So just as you can um, tell what's happening on a phone call just by, you know, hearing one side of the conversation, uh, whether the person's going through a breakup or is suing another company, you can tell a lot, right, as there's escalate their voice. We can have a really good guess as to what's taking place here just by hearing the author's side of the conversation. We can gather information on the issues and the problems and the occasion, and pay careful attention to what the author addresses and focuses on, what counsel and commands he gives to the people. So what is it then that Hebrews is writing to address? What problems is he trying to fix with the people that he lovingly writes to? There are several problems, of course, in this letter, but today I want us to capture at least the one main overarching problem in the letter to the Hebrew people. And this kind of like captures all of them. It, it, it encompasses all of these problems. And that is the overarching problem of the danger of falling away from Jesus. This danger is warned of at least five times in the letter of Hebrews. And Israel, then, is primarily the negative example we are to learn from. Israel saw God's power at work firsthand. They tasted his goodness and salvation from Egypt. But not all of them were saved at the end of the day, were they? 
And he takes this example of Israel then, and he applies it to the church of what can happen to us as well. We ourselves can taste of God's goodness. We can see his mighty miracles and even experience his deliverance to some extent. And yet, we can fall away just as Israel did in the wilderness. And so this is what we see in these warning passages throughout. As we look at them briefly, he says in chapter 2, 1 through 4, he fears that they might drift away from the gospel by ignoring the great salvation that Jesus provided and be judged like the Israelites. And again, in chapter 3 through 4, he fears that they might harden their hearts and fall short of the promised rest to God's people, just as Israel did in the wilderness. And again, in chapter 6 and 10, that they might crucify the Son of God all over again and trample the Son of God underfoot, and eventually in all of this, that they might reap judgment just as they did. And so while we are sometimes tempted to not see the Old Testament as all that important, or the stories of Israel, the author of Hebrews brings the full weight of Israel's story upon us as one of the primary ways that we, the church, are to learn and grow and not repeat the same patterns of history that we see. And so as again, and again, as we read these pressing warnings about Israel and how, how we can fall into the exact same pitfalls as them, we're to feel uncomfortable. Not afraid, but uncomfortable if we find ourselves doing what they once did. So the author then writes to us, warning us about the real dangers that can happen to us about falling away from Jesus. So, if we can imagine a river here with other streams pouring into this one main river of the danger of falling away, it might look like something like this on the screen. And then flowing into this main problem of falling away comes these other contributing problems that the author begins to address in the letter as well. So what, so what are these other contributing problems to falling away? Well, first there was the issue then of laziness and apathy in growing in the faith. This is seen in chapter 5, verse 11, as he expresses disappointment with where they are in their faith, in their spiritual development. The author has so much to say to them, but unfortunately, they've become too lazy to understand. They've fallen into laziness and apathy in regard to growing spiritually. And while they should now be teachers of the faith, they are instead infants in the faith as they consume milk instead of solid food. And again, much of this is rooted in laziness and apathy towards God's word. So the image then is given of Christians who instead of pursuing growth in Christ are captured by more interesting things than Jesus all around them. And in this, there was the very serious danger of falling away from Christ completely as they fall into laziness, sluggishness, and apathy in their relationship to God altogether. And so if we were to maybe even take his concern and apply it to the church today, he might rebuke many of us for our own immaturity as we find ourselves concerned more so in our day and age with Netflix 
and sports more than the Bible, current trends and pop stars more than Jesus, our job, work, and money more than God's word, social media and our personal image rather than his body, the church, and, and any number of things that could potentially detract us from growing in Christ as we should and leads us into apathy and lethargy towards the spiritual things of God. So this is one issue, contributing and feeding into this main river. But then there was also the failure of Christians to encourage one another in the faith and to be there for each other. As Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 tells us, the believers are called on to encourage one another in the faith and to not neglect meeting together as many are doing. And so what we find then is that the church is ceasing to be the church. They're not gathering together to encourage one another in their fight against sin. And while it was from laziness or perhaps persecution or both, this is a pressing issue. And again, the same could be said of our church today. As recent statistics have shown that many are falling off the radar quickly. And they just don't simply see their need of the body of Christ anymore. And as a result, we as the church fail to encourage one another in this crucial way to fight against sin and to stay faithful to Jesus. And so the author of Hebrews addresses this head on. We need each other. We need to gather together for it's how we make Christ known and how we put sin to death and encourage each other to persevere in the faith. So Hebrews addresses these issues but he will also address those who continue to deliberately sin as well. There were some who thought that they could just continue on in sin even though they knew the truth. And so again, the author will again and again and again and again remind them, that's what the Israelites did. Look what happened to them. They were judged, and so the same can be true for us. And in fact, it will actually be worse for us because we're profaning the Son of God which is worse than what the Israelites of old did. So he'll address this as well. And then finally, he will address the intense persecution that they are undergoing. And as we continue to get hints from Hebrews 10, 32 through 35, we find that many of the believers were suffering greatly. They had experienced the plundering of all that they had, everything. And so the author writes to encourage them, to remind them how they suffered all these things for Christ and to not let this be in vain, but count it as gain for the name of Jesus. So the author writes then to encourage, to instill hope for those who experienced life-shattering trials and tribulations. And so the author's goal then is to help believers facing all of these dangers to be faithful to Jesus. Don't fall away. Persevere to the very end. So this brings us then to an important question. How does the author of Hebrews hope to help the believers who are struggling in all of these ways? What is his solution to help these believers be faithful and to turn their eyes back to Christ? And really, how does he plan to help us the church, to keep our eyes on Christ and to remain faithful till that end day when we see Jesus face to face. 
And the solution the author seeks to give to counteract this destructive stream leading to death is to unleash the floodgates of the greater power, beauty, and hope of Jesus Christ. And in the flood of the beauty and glory of Christ, turn the direction of that current around completely so that instead of being swept into destruction, they would be swept into the loving arms of Jesus Christ, who is their great high priest. And so with all the rhetorical skill the author could muster, along with all the force of the Old Testament behind him, the author points us to the supremacy of Jesus Christ over and over again throughout the letter of Hebrews. And we'll see this page after page after page. So let's take a moment to examine this theme as he first points out to us then in the first chapter that Jesus is better than the prophets of old. Yes, God did speak through the prophets in the past to convey his word. But in these last days of which we are part of, God speaks through Jesus Christ, who is the exact image and imprint of God. He is very God of very God. And so he reveals God completely and fully in every conceivable way. And so Jesus is better than the prophets of old, which you regard so highly. But then Jesus is also better than the angels and the message that they delivered. Yes, the angels are glorious. They are great. But which of the angels actually sat down at the right hand of God, the Father? None of them. Jesus did. And because of this, he is superior to them all. He's greater and he is better. But then Jesus is also better than the great patriarchs of old, such as Moses and Joshua, who were highly revered. And yet Moses, though he was used by God in great ways, to bring about great deliverance, can't compare to Jesus who was the builder of the house of God. While Moses just was one piece of the puzzle, Jesus is the whole picture completely. And where Joshua failed to give his people eternal rest, Jesus gives us rest in himself finally and forevermore. And so Jesus is better than Moses and Joshua. And Jesus is also better than the Old Testament priesthood. Well, the priests of old made sacrifices continually day after day with the blood of animals for others and the sins of themselves. Jesus, our great high priest, sacrificed himself once and for all. And his sacrifice was more than sufficient for all of our sins. Because afterwards, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God the Father in victory, glory, and power. And so while the priests of old continue to offer up sacrifices over and over again. Jesus is far better and greater, for his reconciling work is finished. And then finally, Jesus is better than the old covenant and its sacrifices. And so where the old covenant couldn't change our hearts, it couldn't bring us into the presence of God directly, Jesus Christ does through the new covenant that he established on earth. And through his new covenant, which we remember every time we take the Lord's Supper week by week, we remember that this has made it possible for us to enter directly into the presence of God himself. And because of this new covenant, we have new hearts capable of, of loving God as we should. 
We have the promise of Jeremiah 31, hearts capable of pleasing God and loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So Jesus is better in every conceivable way imaginable. He is our perfect prophet, priest, and king. He is our perfect sacrifice and guarantee of a perfect covenant. And so this is the solution that the author puts before us time and time again. To not only recognize that Jesus is better, but to soak our hearts and our minds in his greatness and love. And so he calls the believers to think on him, your high priest, who intercedes before the Father for you. Think on him who was made like you in the flesh to rescue you and save you. Think of his greatness and his majesty and let your hearts be captured by him. And so the main solution then to all the dangers that they were encountering was to again behold the greatness and love of Jesus. And in seeing his greatness then, to follow him faithfully to the very end. And so this is largely what the last part of the book is then, the call to be faithful. Look how great he is. See how superior he is. Follow him to your dying breath. And so he'll call us then to respond appropriately, just as the patriarchs of old did. Just as Enoch, Abel, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah followed him faithfully, so we need to do the same. We need to enter the same journey with them as foreigners in a strange land, for this is not our home. Our home is with Jesus, who is better than anything. And even as many of the prophets of old were tortured, stoned, and put to death in horrific ways, some of them being sawed in half, we must be faithful to Jesus and endure trials and the tribulations of this world. Because in the light of Jesus and his greatness, it will be worth it when we see him face to face. So then, as we come back to the question as to how we can help ourselves and each other remain faithful to Christ, Hebrews provides us the answer. We must time and time again behold the glories and greatness of Christ and be captured by his beauty. We need to see his greatness so that we don't waver in our faithfulness to Jesus and fall to lesser things all around us. And we need to see the negative example of Israel who failed to be faithful to God and learn from their past mistakes and cling to Christ, who is our only hope in life and death. And so my hope and my prayer this morning is that we would all continue to grow in our appreciation, awe, and wonder of Jesus Christ as we walk through this letter week by week. As we conclude this morning, then I want to challenge us just briefly with just a few things that you might be able to do as we prepare to walk through this book. So first, I want to encourage us all to simply read or listen to this letter as a whole. If you have a car ride, perhaps listen to it on audio. The whole book is about a 48-minute read if you're really slow. And so you can either listen to that or you can read it. And so this is my first word of encouragement to you. And if this is 
difficult for you. That's okay. Perhaps more, you're, you're more of a visual learner. Then I want to encourage you to watch, at a minimum, the Bible Project video on Hebrews on YouTube. And then this short eight-minute video will help you immensely as you begin to understand it. Second, then, as we consider this book, I want those who are maybe more advanced in this room to study the Old Testament citations in this letter. There are tons of them, and it's beautiful how he uses it to point us to Christ and his greatness. And so while this might be a little bit daunting for some, look at the context for that Old Testament citation. See what he's doing with it and how he's using it to point us to Jesus and grow. Grow in your appreciation of the wisdom of God that orchestrates all of the scriptures to highlight the greatness of Christ. And then finally, I want to encourage us to pray. Pray for yourself. Pray for others. That as we see the greatness of Jesus revealed in Hebrews, that, that we would be faithful to him as we should. That we wouldn't be like Israel, but that we would learn from their mistakes and follow Christ as we should. So let's go then to the Lord together in prayer, asking for these things. Father, we come before you and we thank you again for Jesus. You, Jesus, are better than anything. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us, help us to see his glories, your glories, and your greatness all the days of our life. Keep us from becoming apathetic towards your word, towards your salvation, towards your greatness. For we realize that if it could happen to Israel, who saw your miracles firsthand, so the dangers are all the more real for us. So we ask, Jesus, that you would reveal to us your glories and your greatness and your beauty, that we might heed the warnings found here in Hebrews, and that we might be faithful to you all the days of our life. Would you fill us with joy and gladness as we follow you? May we not see this as something daunting or hard, but in light of your glory, may we do all of this with great joy in zeal for the name of Christ who died for us. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.